Hey, good morning, church, and good morning, those of you who are joining us online. We've got uh, lots of newcomers in the building today and maybe some new ones online, so let me just say my name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm delighted, in fact, very excited about this as a launching off point for our church over the Lenten season. We are, for the next eight weeks, going to be focused on what it means both to find and to follow Jesus. And we're going to use the book of Colossians as our guide. So I'm going to suggest, if you if you haven't already, that you make a point of bringing a device or a Bible with you as we work through that uh, that treasure of a book in the New Testament. We do our best to put to put things on the screen for you, but that's not your Bible. Bring your Bible. That way you can, you can mark it up and you have the notes with you. Finding and following Jesus is at the very heart of why we exist as a church. In fact, our mission statement is meant to be simple, pithy, memorable. We exist as a church primarily to help people unleash the power of Jesus in their lives. You and me. We are a church that desires at best to help people understand who Jesus is as, as the living bridge between us and God who made us. At the core of who we are, the trajectory of our lives is found in relationship with our creator and we know him best because of Jesus. So we exist to help people unleash the power of Jesus. The problem, though, with a mission statement like that is it's very easy to think about it through the lens of them. We exist to help them find and follow Jesus because we already got it, right? We This is a mission statement for those who aren't here yet. Uh, but there's a risk in that, and the risk has to do with our ability to grapple seriously with our own understanding and our own relating to Jesus. I graduated from university a few years ago, 30-some 30, 30 years ago. I went straight from university into a little church in St. Catharines and, and spent some time there, and then a church in Oakville, and spent, uh, well, a couple of decades there. I'll tell you one of the things that I learned in those early years. It is entirely possible to lead a church or to, to lead a ministry from a place that, that doesn't involve either knowing or following Jesus with depth and sincerity. You just find people who are doing a good job of it, and you do what they did. Make the same sort of decisions, speak the way that they speak, imitate what other people are doing. You can rely on your own talent and ability, and you can lead a ministry that way. And it'll probably get you killed on the inside. We can do church together. We can do a lot of religious things together. We can go through predictable patterns and motions. And none of that will actually move things along in our desire to unleash Jesus in our lives. So for the next eight weeks, this is what we want to do. We want to wrestle deeply within our own walls before we talk about what it means to share that outside our walls. We want to wrestle with what that means. What does it mean to say Jesus is at the heart of our lives, that we place him at the height of our priority list? What does that look like other than just enacting a, a series of kind of institutional, religious, familiar practices? 
church on Sunday morning, small group on Tuesday night, prayer ministry, whatever those things are. My hope is that over the next few weeks, we could do this in a in an engaging uh, and hopefully a, an exciting, thoughtful, spirit-led, God-infused way. So what I'm going to do today is kind of lay out a foundation for where we're going to be over the next couple of months. And I want to talk specifically about about three things that might hinder us in our desire to do that, to find and follow Jesus. Let's get the obstacles out of the way at the very beginning. And I'm going to mention three of them, um, three obstacles that, that can prevent us from a fuller experience of what that means in our lives. The first has to do with our core understanding of who Jesus is. Because uh, if we get that wrong, then as it turns out, we are relating to the wrong thing. You ever been in a relationship like that when you discovered the person you thought you were with is not, in fact, the person that you are with? Traumatic, right? Uh, our understanding of Jesus can be a barrier to finding and following. Second, and, and it flows from that, is our interaction with the Bible. The Bible is the primary way that we come to understand who Jesus is. The Bible is this tremendous, lavish gift of God for God's people. But it's also a problem. Uh, I mean, we need to be honest about it. The Bible is a problem for Christianity because no two people are going to sit down and open up its pages and read and interpret the same thing. And sometimes that brings us into conflict with each other. So there is a desire to interact with the Bible and do it well. Do it in a way that honors what it is meant to be. The Bible itself is not an object of worship. The Bible points us to the one who's the object of our worship. Sometimes I think we worship the Bible as much as or more than we worship the God of the Bible. Think of the Bible like a doorway that allows us to step through and find Jesus. Think of Jesus as like that big gateway that brings us into the presence of the living God. So our understanding of Jesus, our interaction with the Bible, and then the third thing we'll talk about briefly this morning is misconceptions about what it actually means to follow Jesus. What does this mean? What is following all about? So we're going to dive in and do that. Let's, let's pray together for a moment, and then we'll begin. Father, we know that you're present here with us, that you're here to meet us as we seek you. We thank you that, that Lord, you pursue us. You're a God who pursues us. You're far more concerned with us than we have ever been with you. We thank you for, for the way that you desire all of us, our minds, our hearts, our lives. And I pray, Lord, that the words that we speak now and the way that we reflect and, and try and honor those words, that these would be pleasing for you, that you would meet us here in these moments, that you would speak clearly in our lives. So we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing that gets in the way of finding and following Jesus is our understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you remember as a kid or buying for your grandchildren a Hasbro toy called Mr. Potato Head? You remember Mr. Potato Head? Little plastic, well, potato. And to Mr. Potato Head, you could add all the different constituent elements of the face. You could put eyes on, you could take them off, ears on, off, mouth, hat, glasses, all of that. I think that sometimes we fall victim to a Mr. Potato Head understanding of Jesus. What do we mean? It's easy to pick and choose what we follow. We don't like Jesus' ears, so we pluck them off. We, we don't like what Jesus looks like in glasses, so we, we pluck them off. For instance, 
We love that Jesus heals, don't we? We love that he heals people. We read those stories and we pray through them. But we don't so much like Jesus when he gets angry or when he speaks words of woe. Woe to you, he says. We love Jesus who tells us that at its very core, the message of Christian faith has this ethic of love. That, That the followers of Jesus would make their stand in the world as a people who express themselves with generosity and compassion and mercy and grace. We love that. What we don't really love is when Jesus tells us that that ought to extend not just to the people that are easy to love, but to the ones that are impossible to love. Love your enemies, he says. Love the people who are not like us, who don't think like us, who are on the other side of the political divide, who hold a position that isn't just strange to us, but actually riles us up, boils our blood. It's really hard to love those who we think don't get it right and we're convinced that we do. We love that Jesus invites us into this season of rest in our lives. Honor the Sabbath. Do we love that? We don't love so much when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And certainly we love the emphasis that the Bible places on justice and the righteousness and the righteous character of God. But I think we are sometimes uncomfortable when Jesus confronts us with issues of purity or holiness. You see, it's, it's probably easy to make a Mr. Potato head out of Jesus and just pluck off the bits that we don't like. And Unlike the Hasbro toy, when we do that, I think somehow Jesus ceases to be Jesus. What we... What we know of Jesus is it's not just a figment of our imagination. He's not really just subject to our own understanding to pick and choose little bits of his character, his teaching, or his identity. He's not just some spiritual icon that we created for our own comfort. We believe that Jesus is the very embodiment of the living God who stepped into time and space and walked on the earth. We believe that he can be known thoroughly throughout history, throughout scripture, through his spirit. And when you believe that and you get to know Jesus as a living person, there is a level of spontaneity and delight. But there's also disruption. He will disrupt your life. And Jesus will never disrupt our lives, will never really delight over us if, if we just confine him to a Mr. Potato Head style of relationship. What we're going to do over the next eight weeks is take this fresh, new look at Jesus to find a Jesus that is real and true, not the edited version that we sometimes carry with us through life. And we're going to use the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles... It's time to start, and let's start by finding the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It, it is a part of the New Testament that um, that we know was was one of the primary communication tools of the early church. There was no social media. You couldn't post stuff out there. You couldn't even put it in Canada Post and expect it to arrive at the next city in three days. So what you did is you wrote these letters, circular letters that would go to all of the little household churches in the ancient city of Colossae. And it's a new church. It's a fresh new expression of what God is doing. And so Colossians is just filled with these fresh, vibrant descriptions of who Jesus is. 
Not every book in the Bible is about Jesus, as you know. I mean, he's underneath all of it, but the book of Colossians, not long, 95 verses, 73 of the 95 verses speak specifically about who Jesus is and what it means to be in relationship with him. Colossians is this invitation to a young church to grow deeper. So if the first thing that is an impediment, a barrier uh, to coming to, to that deeper place where, where something gets unleashed in us. If the first barrier is our understanding of Jesus, and we go a little bit deeper in Colossians, a second challenge is our interaction with the Bible itself. And we have the same sort of challenge here that we do with our Mr. Potato Head doll, and that's editing. How many of you have been to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington? A few? One or two? Okay, not enough. Not enough. Um, on display in the Smithsonian is a copy of the Jefferson Bible. In fact, let's do this. If you have your phone, you're allowed to look at your phone, okay? <laughs> Open up a Google window. Let's do this together, and we'll do a Google search on Jefferson Bible, okay? And then look at images. And I want you to look at images of the Jefferson Bible. This wasn't discovered till long after the death of Thomas Jefferson. Maybe he thought it wasn't wise or prudent for this to be public. But here's what he did. Jefferson took a razor, I mean a physical razor blade, and started dissecting his Bible, cutting and pasting literally the little bits of Scripture. There's no computer, there's no cut and base, paste function. So he does this manually. And if you look at the pictures, you see them there? What you wind up with is sort of a tattered arrangement of, of little holes cut out of the Bible and little bits pasted in here, and it gets reduced to 84 pages. And some of you are thinking, well, sign me up for that. Next time we do the read through the Bible in a year, 84 pages of the New Testament. I got that one. But Jefferson specifically went through, and here's what he does. He removes all the references to Jesus' miracles. He removes all references to the resurrection. He removes any mention of the ascension or the godhood of Jesus. You see, for Jefferson, the Bible gets focused down on Jesus as a man of morals, but not on Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God on earth, God in flesh. Jesus is, for Jefferson, all morals, no miracles, no majesty, no power. Now, I kind of doubt that any of us literally would cut up our Bibles. Though we face that challenge around here all the time. Like, what do you do with old Bibles that are, that are tattered and torn in the bind? Because it just feels wrong to throw them out. What do you do? But even though we don't want to cut them up, we do this selectively in the way that we read. I love the Psalms. Anybody love Psalms? I read the Psalms multiple times a year, every year. The book of Leviticus is not on my repeat playlist. I don't know, maybe it should be. Maybe we should do a study in the book of Leviticus because I know it's rich. I know there's lots in there that reveals something of the character of God, but it's just not, it's not on my favorites list. Do you have a favorites list? I mean, if you were going to go back and sort of map out the portions of the Bible that you have spent the most time in over the past five years, would there be large vacuum areas, places that you have never gone, effectively that you have edited out of your Bible? So to address this tendency, we're going to go verse by verse, thought by thought, section by section, through the little book of Colossians, editing nothing out. 
uh, just trying to take it all in. And the goal is, I don't just want this to be a learning exercise, how to do Bible study. I don't want you to just learn a little bit about the ancient city of Colossae. I don't even just want you to learn about Jesus. The end goal is not knowledge. We're not just making students. The end goal is disciples, and so it's about transformation. We don't want to use this as an opportunity just to, um, to gain knowledge. We want to foster connection. Our understanding of Jesus, our interaction with the Bible, both can, can be barriers to going deeper. And here's the third one. And it has to do with our misconceptions about what following means. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, Jesus used, that's his word. Come follow me, he said. And sometimes we think that means, well, we got to go faster and harder. We got to catch up with him. But the language of following in the Bible is more of a language of intimacy and relationship um, than it is running flat out in pursuit of something that you never feel like you quite catch. Jesus was inviting people to be with him. In fact, the better language for it, the language that we learn from the trades, is the language of apprenticeship. Come apprentice with me for a while. An apprentice learns, but they learn not just by by reading and studying in a classroom or just listening. They learn by seeing and they learn by doing. They learn through imitation. That's a disciple. That's a follower. We believe that to be a follower of Jesus means that we become more and more like him because we can't help but do that. You have friends that you've known for a lifetime. And because you've known them so long, you learn to finish each other's sentences. You know what they're thinking before they say it. That is the product of a life spent in relationship together. Those older couples, you know, 60th wedding, 70th wedding anniversary. I mean, after that many years, they don't just talk like it. They look like each other. I mean, just... <laughs> that's the goal. Yeah. If our following of Jesus is rooted in something else, then... The journey gets disrupted. And there's lots of things that we can root it in that, that maybe aren't quite as fruitful. Uh, sometimes it comes as a kind of religious duty, moral obligation. We, we need, you know, I'm a person of good stock. I do these things because this is what good people do. Sometimes it comes from a dark place within us, filled with guilt and riddled with shame. And we sort of think if we do these things, we'll feel better about ourselves. We go through these motions. Sometimes it comes from a place of performance. And we hope that following Jesus gets added to the bag of things that make us a successful person in the world. That's probably less so now than it was in the 1950s and 60s when churches were filled to overflowing. But we know that for a lot of people, they were in church, not because it's rooted in deep heartfelt conviction, but that's just what good people did. And I want to be a good, successful person, so I, I go to church. For a lot of us, maybe it's rooted in family history. I was born in Canada, 1960s, uh, born to a church-going family, and so going to church was the norm, and it became the norm for, for my family. It was consistent with the dominant view of Canadian culture at the time. I got up on Sunday morning, we got dressed, our car pulled out of the driveway. Every other car on our street was pulling out of the driveway at the same time. We did churchy things. We participated in church activities. We look and sound Christian. We speak that bizarre dialect. We speak Christianese. And we speak it especially well on Sunday morning. 
we might, might not speak it so well on Monday morning when the alarm goes at 6 o'clock. But, but if it's rooted just in culture or familiarity, well, that's not a strong enough foundation. The other thing that I think hinders us, and especially so for this generation, is our core understanding of what following means. And for this generation, I'm talking about millennials and younger. I think the one, the one just pervasive reality in our culture that has shaped our understanding of following more than anything else is social media. The average person, this statistic is a few years old, so it's probably higher. The average person will spend two and a half hours a day on social media. And social media is filled with the language of following. I have 160,000 followers on Instagram. I don't really. I just joined Instagram so I could look at my kids' pictures and see what they're up to. (laughs) But you know what I mean. You know, we follow people on Twitter. We subscribe to them on YouTube. We cultivate whole communities of followers on Facebook and TikTok and, and on the list goes. And we measure these things as success in following. But that knowledge of following, that understanding of following, I think it is rather starkly held in contrast to what Jesus meant when he said, attach yourself to me, apprentice yourself to me. I mean, social media is so good for so many things, but there's this false kind of intimacy to it. It's the illusion of intimacy. And sometimes it's a it's a really pale substitute for the real thing. Have you ever met somebody in real life that you got to know on social media? And sometimes it's great, but often you, the, the real person just does not live up to the carefully cultivated image that we have of them. Because it's all manufactured and tailored. It's false intimacy. And out in the wild, when we're all just real with each other, boy, it feels different. And sometimes it's a letdown. Following Jesus is a real intimacy. It's a mysterious intimacy. Jesus is, as we said before, he's kind of like the relational bridge that draws us into the presence of the living God, a God who knows everything about us and still chooses to hold on to us. And doesn't that blow your mind? It blows mine. That God who would know everything about me would choose not to let me go. Because I realize in my own life there is this, there's this discontinuity between knowing and loving. And the more you know somebody, the more you will find obstacles thrown up in your path that can make it hard to love. Not so with God, remarkably. He continues to love his people both in spite of and because of who they are and what they know. There's this tension between knowing and loving that just doesn't seem to exist for God. And in Jesus, and this is something social media can can point to and hint at, but can never arrive at, in Jesus we see something true and real. We see the living face of God. We get to hear the voice of God. We get to claim the faithful promises of God, that God knows us completely and loves us because of what he knows. On social media, just a few more little thoughts. Uh, Social media is primarily a one-way relationship, isn't it? You may know everything about them, every detail of their lives. They don't know anything about you. 
other than that you're a number that ticks away on their counter or followers. Not so with Jesus. This is a bilateral relationship. This is real intimacy. He's present with you. He's everywhere. You're never going to be able to set foot any place in this world that doesn't already belong to him or he isn't fully present. There is no space on planet Earth that cannot be sacred space that God cannot fully inhabit. Following on social media is, I think, based largely on our own preferences, isn't it? We choose who to follow. We, we generally work within a certain cluster of, uh, of, of personalities and realities that we enjoy, and we avoid everything else. Following Jesus is rooted in something that is bigger than our own preferences and desires. It's based on, on the way of Jesus, the, the bigger purposes of God. And that's a good thing because it reminds us that it's not just about me, that my story is caught up in the bigger story of who God is. And Jesus links that together. Following on social media is kind of frenetic, don't you find? It's, it's busy. You can follow as many people as you want, hundreds, maybe thousands. And then your media feeds fill up. And you could, you could Twitter away your whole life there. It's like one endless set of rabbit holes that you can fall into. I'm just going to check my feed, you say. And then three hours later, you realize you have checked out 300 personalities that you never knew and you probably don't need to know, but there it is. There's this sense of, uh, of uh, just frenetic activity to it. Following Jesus is focused. It's a focused following. In fact, Jesus was quite adamant about this. He, he held forth that truth that, that is persistent throughout the Old Testament. You remember what God said? You shall love the Lord your God, all your mind, heart, soul, strength, and you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus doesn't live somewhere amidst a sea of people that you follow. He sits there atop the priority list, and then everything else falls into place. It's it's kind of a firm foundation, not the fickle foundation of looking here and there for little bits. And so the scriptures use words like rock, fortress, refuge, strength. The wise man builds his house on solid ground, right? Social media, following on social media, really requires very little from us, doesn't it? It requires a device, a charged battery, and time that we're willing to waste. Following Jesus, wow. There's more there than just our own entertainment, our own amusement. There will always be more content, more videos to watch, more feeds to monitor. Following Jesus, though, is is all-consuming. We don't just, at least I think we don't, we don't just follow Jesus in order to peek in on the events of his day. I wonder what Jesus had for dinner. Maybe he posted a picture or to read his travel journal. I wonder what it was like walking from Galilee to Jerusalem. I hope he posted some pictures. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is it gives us this fully fleshed understanding of who Jesus is. And it gives us multiple different ways of seeing God. 
Multiple different ways of receiving the invitation that God gives to live in relationship with our Creator and our Heavenly Father. Nobody does this better than Jesus, which would make sense, given His true identity. And so we're going to spend eight weeks stepping into a book that is filled with these multiple different ways of seeing and understanding and receiving God's invitation. That's Colossians. And we're going to really dive in with, uh, uh, with our whole selves starting next week. But let's just dip our toes in the water, if we could today. Colossians is, is a language of relationship. It's filled with that. It's about following, about finding Jesus. Uh, Colossians is, is a book where the prepositions themselves have sermons to preach. You remember, remember elementary school grammar, prepositions, those little words that link together words? The prepositions have a story. In fact, as you're reading through Colossians, maybe you just want to start highlighting some of them. Because you have this, this rich language. talks about what it means to be in Jesus. talks about what it means to live our, our lives through Jesus, by Jesus, to Jesus, for Jesus, from Jesus, into Jesus, with Jesus. Seventy different prepositions. Used describing Jesus. And then we are given a single word that describes what that relationship looks like. And I, I want to give you just a few verses from Colossians as we start the journey. And we're not starting in chapter 1. We're actually going to start just this morning in chapter 3. And then we'll go back next week. Colossians 3, verse 1. Let's have a look at these words. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is what's happened to you. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's his sovereignty. God God is uh, in control. Jesus is there. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's the little thought to highlight or underline. Hidden. Hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden. What does that mean? Hidden with Christ in God? Now, I, I don't know for sure, but, but I, have a, I have this lingering thought that Paul learned that from Jesus himself. Remember, Paul didn't, didn't spring to life in the Christian church fully loaded and ready to go. He, he spends years growing and being mentored and learning from those who knew Jesus best, those who spent all their days with Jesus while Jesus was here. And so he heard the stories. He heard the famous parables and the analogies and the teachings. He heard about the events of Jesus' life. Fortunately, all that stuff eventually gets written down, and it gets preserved, inspired by God. We, we receive it. You hold it in your hands, the Bible. And so I have every reason to suspect that that Paul knew the stories of Jesus deeply and cherished them. So he would have known stories like, like this one from John 14. Like you might want to look at John 14 with me. Jesus speaking to his followers about leaving. I've been here with you for a while. We've seen momentous things. Matters of life and death and resurrection. But there will come a time when, when it's time to leave. And he wanted to assure them that that in every way that really matters, he would still be with them. Because the question that we have inevitably is, how do I follow an invisible God? I mean, what does it mean to have a relationship with somebody that we cannot see, touch, hold on to? Are we just praying to some spot up in the corner? How many blips are there on that ceiling tile anyway? 
And Jesus had a deeply held concern, held concern for his, for his friends. And so this is what he says in John 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'll come and be with you. And in a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me. And you will know me. And because I live, you also will be fully alive. And on that day, you'll know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And wow, there is an intimacy there. And I don't think the disciples had any idea what Jesus meant. Maybe we don't either. But I think that's what drives Jesus to do what he does best, what only Jesus does with such memorable words. So he offers up a metaphor, a story. You go to John chapter 15, and here's Jesus saying, okay, let me help you understand. Let me give you this picture. Think of it this way. I'm like a vine. I'm the true vine. And if we've read it all in the Old Testament, we know exactly what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, I'm, I'm the inheritor of everything that was before. Everything that God has been growing from the beginning. I'm the true Israel, the true Messiah. I'm the true vine. And God is like a gardener. I'm the vine. And what are you? You're like the branches. That's the metaphor. That's what it looks like. The branches are hidden inside of me. If you remain in me and I in you, the result will be fruitfulness. You'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. The branches hidden in the vine. When you go to Niagara on one of the tours, you've been to Niagara on the tour? We're a Baptist church. I can't ask that. Of course I can. You've been to Niagara on one of the tours? Yes? And, and, and you're, you're cycling along or you're walking or you're riding along and you look out in the fields and what do you see? You see the vines. And you see the, the lush green leaves and you see the bunches of grapes hanging with full weight. What you don't see is the branches. They're sort of hidden in there. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You're hidden in me. But, but out of the, the nourishment of that relationship of being hidden in Christ comes fruit and fruitfulness. Grapes are harvested, there's abundance, there's, there's good wine that flows. We are, we are hidden in Christ. The leaders of the church often try and tune into what people might be saying about it. What do people think about MCBC, people in the community? Are we on their radar at all? And sometimes we think, boy, we successful or successful when we hear people say, "Listen, I, I love the, church. I love the people. I, I can tolerate the pastors for a change. I, you know, I, I love the programs. I love the activities." You know what I'd love to hear? They're a little weird over there at MCBC. I mean, they're, they're a little bit Jesusy. They, they seem to be all in on this thing, and it's. It's kind of different. They just don't want to let go of it. They really seem to want to be like him. And they aspire to make that their goal, not just on Sunday mornings, but we, we meet them during the week. We meet them at open hands, at the open door, in the shopping malls, in the neighborhood, in the workplace. We meet them and they're a little bit weird. But they're weird in the best way. They're weird in a way that makes people want to know what it is that you've found. Because they see what's been unleashed in you. For the next eight weeks, and I hope you'll come back, 
Will you join us on a journey towards just a little bit of weirdness? (laughs) Uh, About knowing the real Jesus, about apprenticing ourselves to him, uh, about using the scriptures as God's gift and as, as the gateway into the reality of, of a transcendent and transforming God who is at work in us, helping us to be our truest self. Jesus called it the only way to live, a life of abundance. Let me read for you again those words, and then I think that's good for today. Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above. Envision Christ seated there at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, you died with Christ and you've been raised with him and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Will you stand with me? Let's pray together. Let's stand. Lord, we invite you to have your way with us over the next eight weeks. Speak to us. Speak through the pages of the Bible. Speak through the times we spend together living and laughing and learning, but speak in ways that we can hear. And I pray, Father, that together as a community, as a family, we could find ourselves more and more hidden in your son, Jesus. More and more attracted towards towards heavenly things. God, that you could take our eyes and turn them from where we are to where Jesus is. Turn away from anxiety and fear as the ruling values of our lives to the sovereignty and power and confidence of God. Would you do this, Lord, by your spirit, for your glory and for our good? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.